Hope lost had blazed brightly again with the promise of ongoing provision. But now her son has died and hope is extinguished. Despair sets in. Maybe you can relate to what the widow was feeling. Hope raised and then shattered is excruciatingly painful. We've probably all experienced that surge of hope, that calming of tension and fear when a difficult situation begins to move in the direction of a conclusion that we hoped to see. Then suddenly things take a turn, our hopes are dashed, despair and fear envelop us, and things seem worse now than they were to begin with. That's where the widow found herself at this point. All that seemed so positive and bright now seemed negative and dark. It would be hard to blame her for the way she felt. So what if she did fail to see the possibility of God who controls the weather and provides food where there is none of also restoring life to her only child? Again, we must have an understanding of the culture of the times in which this woman lived to gain insight into the reaction she had to her son's death. Women in Elijah's time were completely dependent on men for their support. They had no opportunities for education and no hope of earning a living outside of prostitution. The widow's son was, in essence, her insurance policy. He was the one who would provide and care for her into her old age. When her son died, her hope of any kind of future died with him. These were the concerns that weighed heavy on her at this time. We see also in the questions she poses to Elijah her perspective of of why this tragedy occurred. For the widow, her son's death was a punishment from God directly related to her personal sin. Elijah, in her mind, had been sent to find her out and act as God's agent of judgment against her. Her son had paid the price and she would now have to deal with the consequences. It would have been better if they had both starved rather than for her to be left like this. And we can imagine what she might be thinking here. Why, oh why, had she allowed this man to intrude into her affairs? What kind of mistake had she made to allow him into her home and share her means? She'd acted with good intentions and now everything had gone wrong. Circumstances were now worse than if he had not come. She had been set up and now she was hung out to dry. What a colossal mistake. Why did I do this? And that, I know that may be reading a lot into this situation, but I don't think I'm far off the mark. The reason is because people still react this way. In fact, sometimes Christians react this way. We may be able to excuse the widow for thinking the way she did. After all, she was a pagan and the scriptures indicate that she had not yet put her faith in God. But Christians, one in 
in whose life the Spirit of Jesus dwells. But even Christians, upon being confronted with tragedy, crisis, or hardship, may tend to say with Job, What I feared has come upon me. I knew God would get me for my sins someday, and that day has finally come. I've made God angry, and now he's making me pay. Folks, too many Christians have the idea that pain, problems, and misfortune come as a punishment from God. Oh, what did I do to cause this? But this simply isn't so. Scripture does not support that premise. We've bought into a lie perpetrated by Satan, the father of lies, who himself is behind all hurts, griefs, and he's the one who causes pain. Satan has gotten us to believe two things. First is this. When suffering and pain come, it's God's fault. So, when we're hurting, we ask, why me? What did I do to deserve this? And we begin to put the blame on God. After all, why would we want to be close to someone who would allow this kind of thing to happen to me? How handy for the devil. This, this plays right into his strategy. He now has us blaming God for the very thing he caused to happen And he's completely dodged the bullet. His name doesn't even get mentioned. See, we're too busy blaming God. And a couple of the things about this thinking kind of make me scratch my head sometimes. First is this. How quick we are to give God credit for the bad stuff and slow or completely negligent in giving God the credit For the good stuff. And the second thing that I wonder about. How we expect God to step in and deliver us from the trouble we are in. But please God, keep your nose out of my business the rest of the time. In other words, I want you to be on call to bail me out. But don't bother me otherwise. And heaven forbid that you would ever ask me for anything. Well, folks. God does not cause pain and suffering. That's Satan's arena. These things are the result of living in a world under the curse of sin. Sin, evil, selfishness, and the devil himself move and work in opposition to the good will of God. And so, we hurt sometimes. But God does not cause it. And it is not a big stick that he wields to punish us with. He sent Jesus into the world to cure, to be the cure for the problem of sin that we all suffer with. He came to take the punishment we deserve, to endure the wrath of God against sin on our behalf. Jesus came to bring relief, hope, forgiveness, and healing. So here's some good news. Though God does not cause suffering, he does have this amazing ability to take the worst life can throw at us, that which Satan means for harm, 
and in our, lo- in our lives and reversing its effects. It can actually be used as something that is good for us. And you say, wait a minute. You're saying bad things are good for us? Sounds like an apparent contradiction, doesn't it? Let's look at what the scriptures have to say about this. And I'm going to cite several here. The first is from James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And then from Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So what's this saying? Well, both of these passages tell us that suffering has a purpose in our lives. It produces perseverance so that we may grow to maturity and completeness, not lacking those qualities of Christian character that help us stand strong. And it seems to indicate that this does not happen without suffering. Then for Philippians chapter 1, verse 29 It says, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. What's this saying? Well, we not only have the privilege of believing in Jesus, but also of suffering for him. And it's a sure thing that if you are a Christ follower, you will suffer at some time in some way. Romans 8, 17 Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So we are heirs and co-heirs with Jesus if we share in his suffering. If we do that, it says we can also share in his glory. In other words, if we share in the pain, we also share in the reward. And then Hebrews 2.10. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Speaking of Jesus. Jesus was made perfect through suffering. And guess what? We are made perfect the same way. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-5. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. By the grace and power of Christ, What we experience in suffering can be used in ministry to others. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. 
For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So fix our eyes not in what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. It's telling us that sufferings help us focus our vision on the most important things, those things which are eternal. Then Jesus gives us this assurance in John chapter 16, verse 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And you may be thinking, well, pastor, that all sounds well and good, but I sure wish God would find another way to accomplish these things in a Christian's life. I understand that. I don't like to suffer. I don't know anyone who does like to suffer. But God's work through suffering and his plan for using it are incredible. It's a fact that pain, heartache, and suffering have entered the world through sin, and as a result, it is unavoidable that we will face these things at one time or another. So, if God did not use these experiences for good in our lives, then they would be wasted. The only result of suffering would be pain and misery. Which, by the way, is the only result that many people in this world experience because Jesus Christ is not a part of their lives. They do not have the power and presence of Jesus in their lives, so that when suffering occurs, it can be used for for their maturing and benefit. That is exactly the place where the widow found herself and was the reason she lashed out at Elijah the way she did. The only thing she thought she could experience from the death of her son was pain, loss, and hopelessness. There was no light at the end of the tunnel, no comfort, no eternal perspective, no leaning on the one who was greater than her problems. But praise God, through his power, through his grace and wisdom, what Satan intends for our destruction, God in a miraculous way can use for our good. God does not waste the experiences of our lives no matter how difficult or tragic they might be. It's something I've seen often in the church as those who have come through pain, suffering, and loss have been able to use those experiences in ministry to others. Who but God could accomplish this? Beauty from ashes? Healing from damage? Strength from weakness? Loving ministry from painful hurt? And then the second thing Satan has talked many into believing is this. If I have accepted Jesus as Savior and am obedient to his commands, and if I live by faith, then everything will go well for the rest of my life. I will somehow be exempted from the tragedy and turmoil of the times. Well, I don't need to spend much time on this because the scriptures I just shared with you address this falsehood pretty clearly. The rain, folks, falls on the just and the unjust alike. 
There are no exceptions, be you a believer or not. Suffering is unavoidably a part of life. And if it is not in the physical dimension, then it may be mental, emotional, moral, or spiritual. But as we have already seen, God has taken that into account, and he has a plan for our pain. David Beeble, in his book, If God is So Good, Why Do I Hurt So Bad?, writes this about suffering and God's plan. My brother Paul, a general contractor, sees an analogy between how he builds a house and how God builds us. When it's time to get underway, Satan, the excavator, digs a big, deep hole. The digging tears up the landscape, ruins the view, and generally makes a mess of everything. See, the excavator's plan is to throw us in and bury us. But when the hole is just the right size, God, who has been watching closely, steps in and says, Okay, that's enough. It's just right. And he begins to pour the foundation for the building that, he's, that he has had in mind all along. This, this illustration kinds of sheds a different light on suffering, doesn't it? Let me encourage any of you who are watching today and are dealing with crisis, pain, or loss of some kind, God is faithful. When the hole is the right size, the digging will be stopped. In fact, the excavator will not be allowed to dig even another spoonful. And if we have asked Jesus to be our builder, he will construct our lives and character into a perfect dwelling for his presence. Well, enough time spent there. We've already seen in the widow's response the effect that crisis had on her. She lashes out at Elijah in anger, hostility, and bitterness. What has happened is surely his fault. Someone has to be to blame. All the blessings of having this man of God in her house are now forgotten, and she goes on the attack. Well, we can fall into that trap too easily ourselves. When sorrow or suffering overwhelm us, we can quickly forget the goodness of friends, family, and even God. In our pain, we can lash out at whoever is close. This has to be someone's fault. In our hurt and frustration, innocent bystanders and those nearest and dearest to us often end up the brunt of our outrage. This is the place Elijah found himself in. His response in verse 19, Give me your son, Elijah replied. It says he took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. See, Elijah did not respond emotionally. He did not fight anger with anger. He did not even attempt to defend himself. What he did was reach out and take the boy's dead body into his arms. Now he and the woman were suffering together. Her burden was his. He was sharing her pain and heartache. 
He was, in a way, lifting the load from her heart to his. Again, there's a strong cultural implication here. It was considered a heinous sin for a man of God to even touch a corpse. One had nothing to do with the dead belonging to others. The one exception was immediate kin. And to to violate this rule was to become unclean. So what Elijah was saying to the widow was, we are family. I have completely accepted you. He was identifying completely and totally with the widow in her grief. He was saying, this boy is to me like my very own. And even though the woman in her outburst indicated that she had not really accepted him, Elijah was demonstrating that he had completely accepted her. Do you wonder why he could do this? Well, he'd been prepared. He was equipped. God had humbled the fiery prophet. He had faced his own humiliations. And now it was no longer beneath him to reach out and embrace the dead of another. He also knew that he had something to offer. Not that it would come from him, but from almighty, sovereign God, the one he served. This was the God who had miraculously and powerfully met all his needs. This same power was now available to do for this woman who had lost all that she had. And he knew that he could be a channel for that power because he knew God personally. That, Christians, is an example of how we are to respond to the hurts and needs of others. We're called to bear one another's burdens, to identify with others' pain, to completely and totally accept them. We are to comfort others with the comfort we ourselves have received from Jesus Christ. And you know how we're prepared and equipped to do that? Through our own pain and suffering. And because we know the living Lord personally, we are responsible to call on Him for healing, help, and power that will meet the needs of others in their times of pain. This is important because others may not, cannot, or will not call on God themselves. The widow did not. Well, she'd seen God at work, but she had accepted only his benefits, not God himself. So it's up to us to reach out to others who suffer. That's how the body of Christ works. David Beeble again writes, Your pain is mine and mine is yours, but the best thing is that our pain was his. Jesus bore the cause of our pain on Calvary, and someday he will eliminate suffering altogether. Here, believers is something we know, and that is, we know who to go to. We know to go to Jesus. One more thing. 
What Elijah did was selfless. It was done in secret. He took the boy up to his room, prayed that he would live again, and his prayer was answered. And when, when life returned, there was no fanfare. It was not heralded, but he simply returned the boy to his mother. There was no interest in attracting attention or attempting to prove anything, but only a desire to minister to the need. See, all that we do for others, for one another, is really through the provision of God. Elijah's coming to the widow meant food. Elijah's prayer for the widow's son meant life. The end result was that the woman saw God's sovereignty at work, reaching beyond control of the weather or provision of food. She now recognized him as the giver and restorer of life. And because of that, the woman accepts Elijah's God. And you know what? This might not have happened had she not suffered loss. So here's what we need to remember and hold on to. God does have a plan for the pain and suffering that comes into our lives. Pray with me. Father, we live in a world where pain seems to be all around us and it may be especially true in these days of COVID-19. It's this worldwide pandemic. But even right here where we live, we hear of people sick at home. We hear of people sick in the hospital. We hear of people who have lost their lives to this disease. We know that people are struggling and suffering because of what's gone on, the, gone on in the economy, the loss of jobs, the loss of income. We know about the social isolation and how that's affected people emotionally. People are fearful. Some people are panicking. Some are living under a cloud of worry. Lord God, for a lot of people, this is, is a time of suffering. And we believe, Lord God, that you're able to do something good with that in our lives. I pray that you will do something good with that in our lives. I pray especially that believers will recognize, Father, that this is something you want to use in them for your good purposes. And I pray, Father, in a bigger sense that you will use it for your good purposes, not only in our lives, but in our church, in our community, in our state, and in our nation. Father, I believe that there are some critical spiritual lessons that we as a people need to learn from this time that we're going through, this time of suffering, this time of pain, this time of loss and heartache. Lord God, you are trying to get our attention. You're saying, look to me. You're saying, depend on me. You're saying, trust in me. And out of this, I can work good. And Father, I pray that our hearts will be open 
to allow you to do that, our minds will be tuned to the voice of your spirit. Lord God, we will not panic, but look to you for trust, in trust, for provision, for healing, for hope, for guidance. Father, we want to believe and we want to see this worked out in our lives. We want to know, as as we look back on this, that what Satan intended for evil and destruction, you have used for good. Because, Father, we depended on the resources of God Almighty and your work in our lives to strengthen us, to build our character, character, to benefit us, to build perseverance in our lives, to produce in us dwellings more fit for your presence than ever before. And thank you, God, that in an amazing and miraculous way, you can do this. We give you thanks and praise, and we pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for being with us again today. God bless you.